Well, it is so good to see you guys here this weekend. And even if we don't see you again to Christmas Eve, I'm telling you, it's just great having you guys here this weekend. And if you're here for the very first time, you know, our mission statement here at Hope is to love people where they are and encourage them to grow in the relationship with Jesus Christ. And the kind of story you just heard, uh, we hear all the time and we love hearing those stories. And the reason that we can hear those kinds of stories is because what we're celebrating this weekend and we're celebrating Easter, which is the greatest day of the year if you were a Christian, right? And I know what some of you are thinking, like Mike, what, what about Christmas? And I get that. I mean, nobody loves Christmas as much as I love Christmas. But when you think about it, Christmas was all about Jesus being born. I mean, we've all done that, right? But, but I don't think any of us have died and then three days later rose from the dead. And if you did, I'm telling you, you shouldn't be wasting your time here this weekend. You probably should be out starting your own religion, okay? So Christmas is great, but I'm telling you, Easter is the centerpiece of why we believe what we believe. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that Jesus is alive and we believe that Jesus can change lives. And I realize, I realize uh, for some of you, you're very skeptical to think that a guy actually died and then came back to life. It's not that you're against Easter. It's not that you're against religion. It's not that you're anti-church. It's not that you don't like Jesus. You probably actually like Jesus but the idea that a man died and came back to life, you just can't get there. In fact, you may even consider being a Christian uh, if it was just based on Jesus's teaching, and I get that. Jesus was a great teacher, but you know what? There have been a lot of great teachers down through history uh, that have come and gone. In fact, there is a lady here every weekend, and she rarely leaves without telling me that I am the greatest teacher she's ever set under in her life. And you cannot discount her opinion just because it's my mom. So you gotta take her serious, right? But every one of us, we've all known gifted communicators. We've heard, we've heard great teachers teach and we've got jacked up and excited and motivated and we've walked out and there are certain aspects of our lives that are gonna change. But you know what happened? We went to lunch and that, that was pretty much it, right? And so I understand the foundation of Christianity is not the teaching of Jesus. In fact, let me just be the first one to say, Jesus taught some great stuff. But if you take the time to read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of Jesus's life on this earth, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Jesus taught some weird stuff. He taught some stuff that was strange. He taught some stuff that was odd. I mean, if anybody showed up on 60 Minutes saying some of the stuff that Jesus said, see, you would write him off as a lunatic. I mean, think about it. He equated himself with God. Jesus said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And let me ask you a question. You're gonna let a guy like that babysit your children? I doubt it, see? You want that kind of person to marry your daughter? But I'm telling you, if all we had were the teachings of Jesus, I'm not even so sure we would have heard of him. I think we probably would have just written him off as a nutcase. So here's my question. What's kept Christianity alive and well and thriving? and growing for all of these years. You gotta understand the foundation of everything we believe is based on one event that happened 2000 years ago. In fact, everything we believe as Christians, everything we believe as Christians hinges and hangs not on the teachings of Jesus. A lot of people have been great teachers. It's not based on the death of Jesus. A lot of people have died for what they believe. They've even been crucified for what they believe. The one thing that makes Christianity unique is one event, the resurrection of Jesus, is the fact that he rose from the dead. And I don't know about you, but when someone says and predicts that they're gonna die and rise from the dead three days later, and then they actually pull it off, 
I don't know about you, I wanna be on their team. Yeah, I'm with him, right? I wanna be with that guy. And so typically on Easter, I spend a great deal of time trying to convince you that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he actually died, and that he rose from the dead. And I try to give you facts and information to convince you. But I'll tell you, this Easter message is probably gonna be different than any message you've ever heard from me because honestly, I'm not even gonna talk about the resurrection. I'm not gonna sit up here and try to prove to you that the resurrection really happened because so that you'll become a Christian. Honestly, I have never argued anybody into being a Christian. I have never debated anyone and finally said, okay, I'll believe in Jesus. That's just never, ever happened. Instead, I wanna talk about why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did Jesus die on a cross? Why did three days later did he rise from the dead? And this is simply what I want you to realizing and knowing this weekend as you walk out the doors of this place, whatever campus you're at, is simply this. God wants you. God wants you. God is head over heels in love with you and God wants to be in a relationship with you. And this is gonna be one of the most simple messages you've ever heard in your life, okay? It only has three points and the first point only lasts about 30 seconds. I mean, we'll be out of here in about three minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Don't get your hopes up. Here's the first one. Here's the point. God doesn't need anything. I mean, one of his character traits or his attributes is is that God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything. You see, theologically, God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. He's he's self-sustaining. So God doesn't need anything to exist. This is what it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So the first thing you need to know is God doesn't need anything. But here's the second point. God decided to need us. Or think of it this way. God made a decision I want to partner with you. In other words, God doesn't need us to exist, but God decided to partner with us. I mean, think about this, so that we could coexist. In fact, let me show you an example. Genesis chapter two, verse 19, it says this. This is after God had created Adam and God had created this beautiful environment known as the Garden of Eden and he'd put him there to live and into joy and he even had a job. He says, I want you to manage it and take care of it. But it says in Genesis chapter two, verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man. In other words, he brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. See, how cool is that? See, now you understand why we have an animal that is called a duck-billed platypus. I mean, one day, Adam's hanging out in the garden, and he sees this weird thing waddle by, and he thinks, you know what that looks like to me? That looks like a duck-billed platypus. Now, let me ask you a question. Why didn't God, who created everything, why didn't God just say to Adam, you see that huge gray animal over there with the floppy ears and a trunk? That's an elephant, elephant. Say it after me, Adam, elephant, right. See that animal over there that's eating leaves way up in the tree, those long legs and that tall? Hey, Adam, 
That's a giraffe. See that, see that animal over there with the black and white stripes? Adam, that's a zebra. Hey, see that animal over there with the spots? That's a leopard. Duck. Oh. See why we call it a duck, Adam? See, I mean, my question is simply this. Why did God tell Adam to name the animals? It's because God decided to need Adam in the operation and management in the earth. In other words, God decided to partner with him. Now, this is a principle you literally see all the way through the Bible. Let me show you a couple of examples. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, this is what God says. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand for me in the gap on behalf of the land. He's talking about Israel, so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. In other words, God said, I looked for somebody that I could partner with so that I would not have to destroy the land, but I couldn't find anybody. I think one of the most interesting is Mark chapter six, verse one. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at Jesus. Verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Verse five, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. It doesn't say he would not do any miracles there. It says he could not. So is it possible, now think about this, is it possible that God has limited his unlimited power on this earth to our willingness to partner with him? In other words, is it possible that God has the ability, God has the power to do what you want him to do in your life. He has the power and the ability to do what you actually need him to do in your life right now, but he is just waiting for you to decide whether or not you are going to partner with him. Now, in case you have to leave early, spoiler alert, the answer to those questions is yes. In fact, let me show you a great example of this principle. And I think one of the most familiar stories in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. I mean, even if you rarely come to church, even if you don't read the Bible or believe in God, you've heard the story about David and Goliath. It's because it's, it's, it's the bully and the underdog, right? In fact, even Survivor had a season where the two teams, remember, were David and Goliath, right? And the Davids were like, you know, IT people. And then the Goliaths were like, you know, kind of studly kind of people, right? And it was who was gonna win. But we always think of the underdogs. Well, in case you're not familiar with the story, let me give, just give you a little bit of background about David and Goliath. The tension in this story is provided by the fact that there are two great armies that are getting ready to square off in battle. On one side of the Valley of Elah, we have an army. It's the army of Israel. They're the good guys. On the other side, we have the Philistine army. They're the bad guys. In fact, understand the Philistines of the Old Testament, they were like the evil empire in Star Wars, okay? They were always up to no good. 
And one of the reasons that the Philistines were such a threat to Israel is because they had a huge advantage. And the advantage was they had cornered the market of the iron industry, which means they had the only iron weapons in the region. So this gave them a huge military advantage, but that's not all. You know the story. They also had a behemoth, a giant by the name of Goliath that was fighting for them. Now you can imagine what Goliath was like. I mean, this, this is a bad dude, okay? He is probably tattooed, you know, all over his body. Probably has a patch over his eye, drives a Harley. My guest went to Carolina, just things like, just, just, just a really, really bad guy. And according to this story, every day, this giant of a man would make his way out into the middle of the valley of Eli and, he, uh, Eli and he would taunt the army of Israel and he would do it by suggesting a representative battle, which was very common in those days. And it was actually pretty smart because instead of, you know, two armies just charging out into the middle of a valley and killing each other, basically, a warrior would be chosen from each side and they would go one-on-one -on -one and they would go mano a mano and it was a winner take all preposition. And so it says in 1 Samuel 17, verse eight, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Look at this. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't you think that maybe God could have just sent down a lightning bolt from heaven, struck Goliath right between the eyes and killed him? Or maybe, I don't know, leprosy was big back then. What if Goliath came out and was all, you know, come on out and both of his arms just fell off. He wouldn't be a very effective then, right? Could God do, certainly God could do that. It's because he's omnipotent, which means he's all powerful. But is it possible that he couldn't because he was limiting himself to someone on earth who was willing to partner with him? You see, at this point, my guess, Satan is thinking, God, I got you now. People of Israel, your chosen people, they're getting ready to be mine. Because there's not a man in the whole Israeli army that has the courage, that has the moxie to stand up to my giant. But I think God was like, I don't need a man. I got a kid. And I have been preparing him for this moment his entire life. And you cannot believe what he can do with a slingshot. And in the same way, is it possible, is it possible that God already has a David prepared for the Goliath that you're facing in your life right now? And is it possible that the David in your story is actually you? And without you even realizing it, God has been preparing you for the battle that you're facing right now. You see, God doesn't need us. He's self-sufficient. But he decided to partner with us. Here's point number three. Have you decided to partner with God? 
I mean, you got to understand in this relationship that is possible for us to have with God, God has a part in the relationship and we have a part in the relationship. So let me just tell you a couple of things that we need to know about our part in the relationship. Here's the first one. God is never going to do our part. He's not going to do our part for us. And that's important because, see, most of us have spent time praying and asking God to do something in our lives that's actually our part. Let me give you an example. Let's say that mine and Laura's marriage is a disaster. It's not today. Right now, today we're okay. Tomorrow we'll see, but it's not. But let's, for the sake of illustration, let's say that our marriage is on the rocks. So what do we do? We do the same thing that most couples do when their marriage is falling apart and they don't know what else to do, they pray. So we pray, God, fix our marriage. God, save our marriage. God, heal our marriage. Now here's the problem. If you read the Bible, you'd see that the Bible has some very specific instructions that God has given us as husbands and wives. For example, God has some very specific instructions in the Bible about how Laura is supposed to treat me as her husband. And God has given me some very specific instructions as a husband, how I'm to treat Laura as my wife. So do you know what that means? It simply means if I'm not treating Laura the way that I'm supposed to treat Laura, according to the Bible, and if she's not treating me according to the Bible, the way that she's supposed to, supposed to treat me, we're just wasting our time praying because I'm telling you, God is not going to do our part. But if you're honest, there are a lot of you out here listening this weekend and you're mad at God about something, you're angry at God about something because you know, you know he has the power and he has the ability to fix your situation. It could be a situation with a child. It could be a situation in your marriage. It could be a situation with a friend. It could be in your finances. You know he has the power and the ability to do something miraculous and fix it, but he hasn't done anything. I think God is like, listen, I'd love to fix your situation, but I need you to do your part. God's never going to do your part. By the way, speaking of relationships, they're complicated, aren't they? That's why next weekend we're starting a brand new series. It's called Help Us. And over five weeks, I'm going to be giving you five keys to every happy, successful relationship. This could breathe life back into an almost dead relationship. This could take your relationships to a new level, but we're gonna be starting that next weekend. And I hope even if you're visiting for the first time, you'll come back and check it out. I promise you, we will have a blast in this series. But here's the thing, God is never going to do our part. So we need to figure out what our part is when it comes to our relationship. Here's the second thing, our part is never supernatural. I mean, for example, if you're in school and you have a big exam coming up Monday, but you decide instead of studying for my exam, I'm going to play video games all weekend, right? It, it does, there's no use for you to get up on Monday morning and say, God, help me pass this test. See, you don't need a supernatural miracle. You just need to do your part. See, I had a couple come up to me last Saturday night after church at the Raleigh campus, and they came up to me and they were so cute. And they said, Pastor Mike, would you pray for us? We want to have a baby. So I took them under each arm out in the atrium and I prayed, God, you know, bring, you know, let them conceive, let them have a baby. And I prayed for them for a minute or two. And then when I finished, I looked at them and I smiled and I said, okay, I prayed. Now you need to go home and do your part. You need to practice a lot. Okay. Cause see that you don't need something supernatural. You just need, you need to do your part for, you see it in the story of David and Goliath. I mean, good gracious. All David did was what? 
put a stone in a slingshot, swung it around and around and around, took aim, let it fly. That was his part. Our part is never supernatural. Here's the third thing. When we do our part, God does the supernatural part. You know what's interesting? If you go back to the story of David and Goliath, archeologists and, and historians who have excavated it and, and discovered all of these incredible artifacts say based on Goliath's helmet, what he would have been wearing, David had little to no chance of making that shot. There was about two and a half square inch area right here where Goliath was vulnerable. And the odds of David swinging that stone, letting it go and making the perfect shot were slim to none. But David did his part. And then God did the supernatural part of making sure the stone hit exactly where it needed to hit in order to kill Goliath. I'm telling you, when we do our part, God does the supernatural part. Now, this is what some of you are thinking. What the heck does this have to do with Easter? This is where Easter comes in. Let me go back to Adam. So you'll understand what I'm saying. I mean, think about it. God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the beautiful garden of Eden. He says, it's here for your enjoyment. It's all yours, except one tree. Stay away from it. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can have anything else. Stay away from that tree. If you eat the fruit of that tree, you're going to die. You're going to die. Meaning one, immediately our relationship, God's saying between me and you, is going to be dead. But you're also going to begin the process of dying physically. So Paul comes along in the New Testament. And this is what he writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that would be Adam and Eve in the garden, and death through sin, there was separation in the same way. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now, just think about that for a second. What that's telling us is because Adam sinned, all mankind has been separated from God. Every human being since Adam has been separated from God. You didn't have to sin to be separated from God. When Adam sinned, sin entered into the bloodstream of the human race. You were born separated from God. And I know what some of you are thinking because I've had the exact same thought. Doesn't it seem unfair that one man sinned and it screwed everything up for all of us? Isn't that unfair? Now, you're not going to say yes because you're in church on Easter, right? But I promise you this, you'll probably get in the car after we get out of here and you'll say, you know what? That really doesn't seem that fair. That doesn't seem fair to me, right? But let me tell you something. It wasn't unfair. In fact, let me tell you what it was. It was brilliant. Only God could have thought of this. And let me tell you why. Since it only took one man to ruin it for all of us, it only took one man to fix it for all of us. Now I'm telling you, that's brilliant. And that's the story of Easter. A man, Adam, destroyed it. And so a man, Jesus, had to fix it. It's kind of like the story of David and Goliath. What did Goliath say? Choose a man to come out and fight me. If I win, I get it all. If he wins, he gets it all. It makes me wonder if there was a conversation one day between God and Satan that went something like this. Maybe Satan says to God, 
choose a man to come down here and fight me. Win or take all. And I wonder if God responded, okay? I choose Jesus. To which Satan probably responded, whoa, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Jesus isn't a man. And God's like, no problem. We'll just make him one. And John 1 tells us the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Born in a manger. Grew up in the home, became a carpenter. But this is what's interesting. For 33 years, Jesus walked across Palestine and every step he took, he realized he was one step closer to why he came. And that was to die and shed his blood to pay for our sins. And he did it for all. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one sacrifice, that's Jesus. By one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And you hear that and some of you might be thinking, well, does that mean that everybody now gets to go to heaven? Well, the answer is no. See? And that's, that's the whole point of the message. What I'm telling you about Easter is that God has already done the supernatural part by sending Jesus to pay for our sins with his death. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to verify and validate I am who I say I am. I am the son of God who can take away the sins of the world because no one ever before and no one ever will die and come back to life. So my point is, God through his son Jesus has done the supernatural part. The real question is, are you gonna do your part? Spoken, I am forgiven. 
Stabilized by the community that surrounded me. Oh, how I so naively supposed that I was secure, confidently singing the songs in the key of childhood joy, unaware of the chasm between my experience and true life, unaware that in a hopeful life the price must be death. Each night I held my breath through reoccurring visions of earthquakes, seemingly warned to be the foundation of my world would soon shake. What was once stable, piece by piece, will begin to break until the whole roof came down. They're exposed, covered in ash, seeking shelter within the ruins of divorce. I was separated from my peace with no hope. I was forced into the arms of a world waiting there to receive me with slugs. My soul would cry, I can't find love. I just can't find love. And that's where you found me, there in my brokenness. Hoping this chapter wouldn't have to end in utter hopelessness. But in Jesus Christ, grace was given to me. Like billows of waves on a shore's gift from the sea, refreshing me instead of rejecting me and deserve shame. You've resurrected me today, my hope is in your name. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your very body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the
So God did His part, the supernatural part. And really what it comes down to, are you gonna do your part? And let me tell you why this is so important. Early we heard a song and it talked about you're drowning. And some of you are drowning. You just feel like you're drowning. You feel like you've gotten to the end of the rope. You've, you've tried all kinds of things, trying to find peace and contentment and satisfaction in this life. And you just can't find it anywhere. And what I wanna tell you and leave you with, God created you and designed you to have the most incredible life you can possibly imagine. I mean, it's a life of peace. It's a life of joy. It's a life of satisfaction. It's a life of forgiveness. Can you imagine being able to go to bed this evening and realize that God has forgiven you for every wrong thing, every sin you've ever committed. He's already forgiven you for every sin you're going to commit because he has totally and unconditionally forgiven you. He's gonna give you that kind of life. He's gonna give you a life of meaning and purpose. He's gonna give you a life that when you live this life and you take your last breath, 100% assurance that you will get to spend all eternity in a place called heaven with a father who is head over heels in love with you. He's did his part. But now it's up to you whether or not you're gonna do your part. And I know what some of you are thinking, Mike, I'm, I'm trying to do my part. Mike, have you noticed it's Easter and I'm at church, I could be at the beach, you know, and I'm trying to be good. And, and I don't know if I told you, Mike, but you know, I was baptized when I was a baby and my parents made me go through confirmation. And three years ago, I decided I'm not gonna kick the neighbor's dog anymore and I pay most of my taxes. I'm trying to do more good things than bad things. And as long as God grades on the curve, you know, and, and, and the ABCs are okay and on the Ds and Fs don't get in, I'm probably gonna get in. See, that's what you're thinking, but you gotta understand that's not your part. It's not your part. Let me tell you what your part is. Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is who he said he is. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he was the one who can take away my sins, you will be saved. That's your part. That's the power of Easter. And it can change your life forever. But you have to do your part. Would you bow with me as we pray? Let me just ask you before I pray, would you like to do your part? Would you like to make Jesus Christ the center of your life today? I mean, if you're not sure 100% that if you died, you would go to heaven or you know that you're not where you need to be in your relationship with God, you just know that. I wanna lead you in a prayer. And I'm just asking you to pray this prayer in your heart. There's nothing magical about this prayer, but if it comes from your heart, and you, if you pray it believing, I'm telling you, God will hear it. God will change your life. Just pray this in your heart. Dear God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. And I accept Jesus today as my Savior. I believe in you. In your name we pray. Amen.